is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 9th of May 2017. A podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data. My name is John, and here is my co-host Dave, who was on time today. Hooray for being on time. <laughs> Actually, it, it's, it, it is quite magical because yesterday I was... I was nearly five minutes late for everything yesterday. And I do apologize to anybody that I did speak to yesterday where the first words coming out of my mouth were, I'm so sorry I'm late. Uh, and and you know what happens. You're late for one thing, which means you're late for the next. Uh, yeah. the, only, the only thing I can say is I was on time by the end of the day. But yeah. <laughs> Yesterday, that, is, was, yesterday was a bad day. Today is starting well. I'm on time, so yeah. fingers crossed. So you finally ditched the Spark micro-batching for real-time streaming with Storm, then? Storm all the way, baby. Storm <laughs> all the way. Anyway, I'm all about the happy storm. Happy you here, anyway, Yes, indeed. Because we have some exciting news. We do. We do. So we are hereby announcing... Uh, the winner of our current uh, currently running competition, which is now, I guess, just finished. Um, so we've had uh, tickets to the uh, Munich DataWorks Summit that we gave away a little while ago, and uh, we've been running a similar competition now for the San Jose DataWorks Summit. Once again, thanks to HortonWorks for providing us a uh, all-access pass to the DataWorks Summit. Um, and in this particular case, this is obviously for the San Jose uh, DataWorks Summit that is running from June 13th to June 15th. And the whole competition has basically been around uh, promote the roaring elephant. The easiest way to do that, of course, is once our episodes go live, uh, Jon very kindly fires up the Twitterverse and uh, posts a tweet out, uh, retweet that, and uh, that gets you a ticket to enter the raffle. Yeah, just um, to note here, you have to retweet. Just liking the post isn't enough. Indeed. Wise words there. Um, so we've had a number of uh, people that have been uh, publicizing the Roaring Elephant, and we thank you all for that. But unfortunately, there can only be one. And that one, in this Drum case, <laughs> Mohammed. Ansari, congratulations. You are a winner. Congratulations. Um, you will be sent a direct tweet and uh, to confirm that it's you, and we'll uh, let you know how you can pick up that ticket. Now, if for whatever reason Mohammed cannot make it, then we also have a backup alternate second place winner. Drum roll again. Your turn this time. <laughs> Pitt Fagan. Hooray! Congratulations. So, yeah, just for clarity, uh, Pitt, you sh will win the prize if for some reason Mohammed does not accept the prize. Indeed, indeed. Cannot make it, doesn't want to go, um, is busy doing something else. So, there we go. Thank you to everybody um, who took the time to retweet our uh, our episodes or even indeed do fresh tweets about uh, Roaring Elephant. Again, at Hadoop Podcast is uh, the Twitter handle of uh, choice. Um, that's pretty much all I have to say on that. Congratulations to uh, to both Mohammed and Pitt. Um, hopefully Mohammed can make it. If not, Pitt, you're on deck. Um, DataWorks Summit in San Jose, June 13th to 15th. Yeah, roll up, roll up. 
yeah, we'll be sure to reach out to you guys uh, to hear how you uh, experience the summit after the fact. Indeed. And of course, that means that this raffle is now uh, finished, expired, Ooh. no longer valid. If you'd still try to enter, you are too late. Although, we have been contacted by Yuen from a company called Saji. Uh, they have offices in uh, Paris and San Francisco, I think. And uh, they are also a fan of the podcast and wanted to give us some sponsorship. And as usual, we replied, we like you to give out prizes to our listeners. And they agreed to that. So, another drum roll, perhaps. Well, maybe keep it for when the winner is announced. But we'll have a new raffle starting next episode. So not yet this one. This, this is just a tease. And this raffle will not be for a San Jose or any other place Dataworks Summit ticket. It's something different this time. We are going to be raffling off a sponsored by Saji. One year pro membership to O'Reilly Safari Books Online. Currently valued at almost 400 US dollars. Hey, 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 that's a great prize. That's a brilliant price. I mean, I've been using Safari Books Online for a long time. I like them very much. And, um, yeah, we will have uh, the guys from Saji on the podcast, hopefully, with a little more information about themselves. And uh, for people who were at the Munich uh, Data Summit, you might have noticed that they actually had a session there presented by Ewan and Aurelia. Uh, about suicide and spark and something. And apparently data scientists are very suicidal because it was a very popular session. I didn't get in and I think you didn't get in either, uh, Dave. That's right. We were both stood outside <laughs> going, don't they know who we are? Um, yeah, we couldn't even get in. It yeah. was it was that full, full but, capacity. But the videos are online now. So if you are interested, you can look, watch the video. And I have. And it's a very nice presentation, real world, showing lessons learned and everything. So... Uh, very happy with them being uh, fans of our podcast and willing to sponsor this way. And uh, as I said, we'll try to get on the podcast to talk a bit more about uh, them and maybe about the session they did at uh, Summit. Sounds good to me. But once again, this raffle hasn't started yet. This will raffle will start next episode and then we'll run for the two weeks of that episode. All right. More information upcoming. And again, same rules, uh, the raffle rules are on the podcast uh, web pages. So just uh, look on that page if you want to know more about how you can enter, what you can do, and all the rest of the nitty-gritty details. And with that... And with that, God, what's the next part again? I always forget. Uh, I think it... I think it could be some news. We could do some news. Do you want to do some news? Oh, we could do some news, but... Uh, you told me it's been a very boring couple of uh, weeks. Well, a little bit, yeah. I, I I struggled a little bit to find a suitable volume of newsworthy stuff. Um, I had one great news story um, that I'll start off with, which is Apache Metron uh, graduating to top-level project status. Um, hooray! Hooray! Very, very good news. Congratulations to everybody um, in the Apache Metron community, uh, everyone that's been working towards this. Uh, I think it's a, it's a, great, um, a great recognition of the maturity of, uh, of Metron as a project. Um, so just a little bit about it. If you haven't come across Metron yet, which mm -hmm. suggests possibly you're a new listener, so welcome. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Metron initiated... Yeah, on and on and on about uh, Metron. 
Yeah, okay. I love the Metron. Um, so Metron came about um, at Cisco back in 2014. It was originally called OpenSock. Um, it was submitted to the incubator in 2015, December 2015. And the first release of Apache Metron came out in April 2016. So it's been, you know, it's been relatively quick to to get through that, you know, 24th of April 2017 and, uh, you know, top level project status, which of course means that uh, there's got uh, a variety of community and and committers and contributors behind it, not just a single organization. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's a couple of links in the show notes about it. If you're interested in cybersecurity on Hadoop, definitely worth a look. Um, one thing I just would make a, a quick note about, and it, it's a petty point really, but uh, the the log, the the log, the link to um, uh, to the blog post on Apache.org um, mentions Apache one, two, three times. Um, but the URL cuts off before it mentions the project name. So uh, it's it's quite an amusing URL that mentions Apache a whole bunch of times, but doesn't actually mention the project yet. Anyway, uh, I've also included <laughs> the uh, the Hortonworks uh, link uh, as well. So check those both out. Uh, congratulations to uh, Apache Metron and everybody that sails within her. Yeah, I actually appreciate the fact that they shortened the URL because that makes the tweets more easy to work with because more text <laughs> means less tweet text, although Twitter has changed things a bit there. Yeah. Uh, I did have a question though, because uh, Metron is a, call it a product for now, for now perhaps, based on uh, on Hadoop. Mm-hmm. But is this going to be um, distributed as an assembly on top of an existing Hadoop cluster or will it always be a uh, I don't want to call it a black box. So the idea is that it's a I mean... It's very much a a framework um, that you deploy on top of an existing Hadoop environment. Um, so, you know, out of the box, there are a few things that come with it, of course, like like all good projects. Okay. Um, but you're generally expected, you know, start connecting up your data sources, um, start working out how you want to parse data through it and all that sort of thing. So there's still, you know, still some assembly required. It's not one of those uh, install it and off you go kind of... Uh, gigs but uh it's certainly uh it's maturing nicely yeah but will it be presented i mean uh yarn tree though has this new concept of an assembly we have a number of components in a kind of uh, pre-packaged mm-hmm. thing with configuration because when you would put a uh, metron on top of an existing hadoop cluster that's doing my etl whatever i would suddenly have a second uh i mean metron is using some machine learning to do the um detection of intrusions so i would have a second spark load uh, workload running maybe with different uh, libraries maybe with different queuing i would have a yarn extra yarn queue necessity there to make sure that it doesn't interfere would that be i do install and it creates all that or no. is it something i would have to do myself how what's the not what is it today but what's the philosophy behind it so I think the philosophy behind it in the future is I can definitely see it falling into this whole kind of assemblies um, Hadoop 3.0 kind of universe. Mm-hmm. I can I can absolutely see that happening. Yeah, the reality would be great, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the reality is that um, there's I think there's still you know a reasonable amount of development work to go on sure. on Hadoop 3.0 and Yarn 3.0. I think there's there's still there's still a few things that seem to be settling in um, there, but I think that's definitely the direction that things are going, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, congratulations to Apache Metron. Hooray. Over to you. Over to me. Oh, yeah. 
uh, I found a. I had the same problem as you had a bit of a, a dry two weeks to find good information. So I've ended up with a benchmark article from Cloudera. Now, I don't usually like talking about benchmarks, definitely not when they're coming from a vendor, because they, oh, there's always some bias in there. But, uh, well, it's a slow news day, so I took it anyway. And it does have some uh, interesting things here. Uh, article is on the Caldera blog site, and it's called Apache Impala Leads Traditional Analytics Database. And what they do in the article is use this uh, well-known TPC-DS uh, benchmark, running it on uh, Impala, Greenplum, Spark, SQL, Presto, and Hive. And they have some nice graphs there. And obviously, Impala is the best everywhere. I mean, looking at most uh, vendors out there, any benchmark they will publish, they will publish when they are on top, of course. So I'm not entirely wanting to talk about the actual results here, Mm -hmm. but more about the methodology behind the testing. The first thing I want to mention, and that's a good point, is they're comparing Impala with Greenplum. That's good. I mean, that's, they're both MPPs, so mm-hmm. they should have uh, representative uh, results. And to be honest, the whole article is kind of split into two. The first part where they actually compare Cloudera with Greenplum, and then the second part where they compare it with the, uh, as they call it, SQL on Hadoop uh, alternatives. The comparison between Greenplum and uh Impala is pretty straightforward. They have pretty much the same kind of uh, hardware setup, same kind of testing. So the um, yeah results are, I guess, representative of real-world solutions. So not much of an issue there. The issues are starting when they go into the other things, the Spark, Presto, and Hive. The thing is that throughout the article, they continually had to set Hive aside, change things, do non-standard things. It pretty much makes it impossible to compare the results. And whether or not they had to do this, that's, that's the other thing. They don't, they tell us they had to do different things, but not why. For example, uh, the first thing I noticed is they're comparing uh, Impala using Parquet Snappy with ORC slash Zlib for Hive. Now, Spark, they don't mention anything more than that, but they've got Snappy on uh, Impala and they've got Zlib on Hive. Mm. So if you want to compare stuff, use the same compression algorithm. Yeah. Because regardless, I mean, I think Snappy is faster and Zlib is better for compression, but do contradict me if I'm wrong. So that's broadly true. Broadly speaking, um, Snappy will give you... Um, you know, lower compression ratio, therefore less CPU overhead, therefore faster. The the only thing I would mention is that potentially, if you've got a very slow storage backend, which it doesn't look like they have on this, but if you had a very slow storage backend, then actually having something with greater compression, like Zlib, uh, yeah. might mean you spend less time reading stuff off disk, and therefore, you know, the the computational overhead is is lesser. That it might actually be faster that way. Mm. One thing I I wonder about this is. Do you think that, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking through, and I don't actually see it mentioned anywhere, but one of my questions would be, do you think that they're just testing against whatever the defaults were that it was supplied against? So that mm-hmm. you, often, you often see this, I mean, we saw this in the, um, the similar competing benchmark that came out, I think, tail end of last year, where you know Hive was talking about some of the latest features and was comparing against Impala and something else and something else, and you know they said they they specifically stated that they just used 
everything out of the box. I think it might have been the LLAP stuff. Mm -hmm. They they deliberately said, we've not configured anything apart from LLAP, which all we did was switched it on. Everything else was installation defaults. So I I wonder if the the differences between the, the, the deployments were due to using defaults. Well, they say, don't. They don't give any details. That's one of the yeah. remarks I have in my conclusion on the article. That's one thing that's missing on any on most vendor-driven benchmarks. They hardly yeah. ever tell you how they configure the stuff. Now they do tell, give you a GitHub where you can download the tests they ran on Impala, and that gives you some information how to set it all up. But they don't give us anything, anything else. So again, it's hard to make the config the the, the the comparison. But just here, just simply having the choice of having Snappy on one end and Zlib on the other end regardless which one is the fastest or the slowest one for the uh, hardware they have, it's going to skew your results one way or the other. So a bit bit of a sad thing there, but this is a a minor nitpick, to be honest. Because the next thing that they have... Sorry, you want to say something? Uh, I was just saying, you know, uh, benchmarks... I think benchmarks are useful, right? They they they're supposed to at least give you an order of magnitude representation mm-hmm. of what's what. I would also say that benchmarks are at the same time pretty useless because if that unless your organization's data directly re- is represented by the TPCDS data, you're going to see potentially nothing like this. So, as as always with these things benchmark with your own data um and your own processing don't don't just rely on uh, blindly rely on any benchmarks from any organization yeah but before you're going to start doing benchmarks on your own stuff you want to have some idea which one should be the heavyweights and at that point synthetic benchmarks like this do play a role yeah, yeah, i think yeah. as i say but i think they give that order of magnitude uh, yeah, yeah. the problem here is though that and i'm quoting here from the article itself uh, they mentioned something about uh, some queries not being included because the uh, SQL syntax is not present in Hadoop, things like rollup, intersect, accept, and having clauses. And then they state, due to Hive's even greater limitations on subquery placement, we were forced to make a number of modifications to create semantically equivalent queries. We ran these modified queries just for Hive. So basically what they're saying here is that Hive can't run many of the TPCDS queries, which surprises me because I've seen plenty of uh, TPCDS Hive benchmarks run before. They actually have a footnote in the article with all the queries they ad- they adapted, and I think it's more than half. And even if that's all maybe true and uh, defendable, they don't tell us how they modified them. And that, for me, totally invalidates any results here. I guess the so I guess the the how they modified them it must be in the the TPCDS uh, Impala kit that's on GitHub. Uh, no, because that only gives you the test that you ran on Impala, not the ones you ran on the rest. So it's it's typically Impala. It's the Impala test there. So, I mean, I'm still very surprised that apparently Hive can't run these to, these queries because I have seen these before and actually on the Hadoop Summit. A couple of weeks ago, uh, the talk by Alan Gates on the Hive Data Warehouse uh, session actually had a, uh, a graph on the screen with TPCDS uh, comparisons between uh, Impala and uh, Hive, uh, showing some different numbers, but let's go in there. Because another difference there is that uh, usually when you see these uh, benchmarks on TPCDS, you get a result graph per query. I mean, query number one was this result, query number two was this result. And this article just gives you a total for the 77 uh, queries they ran. 
Yeah. And each of these SQL things has flaw, has strong sides and weak sides. And they have some queries that do better than the others and some queries that are worse than the others. And having a more detailed result set gives you a lot more to learn from. While here you just have, I mean, the, the whole, what you talk, talked about, use your own data and not a synthetic benchmark is exasperated here because you don't even get the details from the synthetic yeah, benchmark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, okay. So, and then the cherry on the cake, and that's really the reason why I wanted to, to, to mention this one, is that apparently they were not able to run the benchmarks on the 10 terabyte bench, uh, data set on anything but ben, uh, Impala and Greenplum. Apparently, Hive was not able to scale to 10 terabytes. Now, in my experience, Hive is typically somewhat small, uh, slower than Impala on small data sets because Hive is better at big data sets. So limiting the test to the large data set only for the MPP uh, engines and then having the Hive Spark and um, forgot the third one now. Uh, Presto tests Presto. only on the one terabyte set. Again, really skews the uh, results here. If they would tell us in the article, we couldn't because, but all they say is it didn't work. Now, at the end, they do give you some uh, nuance, which is good. Uh, they do say that a difference between the identical database cohort in Pala Green, Plum, and SQL and Hadoop, Hive, Presto, Spark becomes apparent, blah, blah, blah. And then where these other SQL Hadoop engines aren't able to meet requirements for analytical database workloads, that doesn't mean they don't have value for other workloads. So at the end, the, it, it does kind of nuance it a little bit more. But still, I, I see it a bit as a, a, a lost chance. I mean, I... I Basically, what I do with benchmarks is I go to Cloudera to see the Impala numbers, and I go to Horton to see the, uh, the Hive numbers, and I go to Mapar to see, I don't know, what do they do with SQL? Not much, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, Kafka numbers. Oh, oh, that's cruel. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. That, that's on me. That's on me, people. Don't, don't, blame, don't blame Dave, it's me. But just go, I go to the vendor itself to, do, to see the benchmarks on their own stuff because that's going to be the best numbers you can get. And then compare them at, uh, at yourself. It's a little bit more work because you have to do the matching yourself because it's very hard to find identical benchmark setups, of course. However, since they don't give you a lot of information about the setup anyway, it's maybe less of an issue. You'll have the best possible numbers and compare these uh, amongst each uh, amongst them. And that should give you a, somewhat of a better image. I don't know. Well... Yeah, benchmarks. Uh, yeah, necessary benchmarks, evil. politics, and lies, right? <laughs> Not necessarily in that order. <laughs> yeah. yeah, pretty much. Let's avoid all of them. All right. Anyway, enough of the benchmark bashing. Over yeah. to you again. Let's, let's go and talk about something more fun. Let's go and talk about big data and the big data landscape. <laughs> so I've, I've had this um, kicking around for a little while. It's actually, let's see, when did the post That's go live? Cool. April 6th. So it's 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 nearly uh, it's nearly a month old, but um, I've been saving it for a, a rainy day, and uh, and so I thought today I'd bust it out, and I I just I'm a sucker for a good infographic, yeah, and uh, and this is I think it's just great. So this post is from uh, Matt Turk, uh, who's managing director at First Mark Capital, and he is. He's done this a number of times mm-hmm. um, and uh, asking, is big data still a thing? And he basically groups um, a lot of the main players in the big data space into a variety of different categories 
and puts it all on one big graphic. So, you know, his post actually is also well worth a read. There's some interesting yeah. stuff there. Um, so give give that a read. But then if you scroll, it's probably about a, th- a third, a quarter of the way down the page, you'll see the infographic itself. You can hit uh, a URL to download the full-size image, and uh, there's actually a list of companies in a spreadsheet format if you're, you know, you want to build your own. But uh, I just think it's 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 a really nice sort of graphic. So it's split up into things like uh, infrastructure analytics, applications, um, cross infrastructure analytics, uh, open source projects, data sources and API, data resources. It's just. It's just I just find it brilliant. It's yeah. it's a it's a logo chart. It's it's in your face. You can sort of oh I don't know I've never seen that project. You know, there's a few kind of interesting here ones here that I hadn't come across before mm-hmm. in in spaces I was interested in. Yeah, it can actually be quite inspirational as well. If you're looking for a certain solution in a certain area, then just taking a look here, you see some company names, some projects pop up and uh, reach out to them and maybe have something uh, working for you. And I've actually been using these uh, infographics for a couple of years already just to show people how the whole Hadoop environment is evolving, growing all the time. Because if you have a number of years, one after the other, you can really see it growing from a handful of things to this. Yeah, it's a huge chart these days, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean the the so the the trend that I thought that was particularly prevalent this year is uh, if you look up towards the um the top right-hand side where you've got applications enterprise and look towards the sort of the far right-hand side sort of just above the middle of that purple section, the security <laughs> section. Oh my word. I mean, there is. Yeah. It's it's literally it's more compact than any other uh, section. I think I'm right in saying it's just there's so much stuff crammed up in there. There's so many security related mm-hmm. uh, enterprise application project, and that's not even all of them. So, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I mean, I think I know a third of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's it's a lot of new stuff there. Yeah, definitely. So anyway, if you like, if you like some infographic goodness, um, yeah, take a look at that. I, I, I thoroughly recommend it. And actually, Jan made a great point. You know, if you, especially if you look at previous versions of this, and if you're doing one of those introductory kind of, mm-hmm. this is what big data looks like, and this is what the ecosystem looks like. These are great for that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Huge kudos to Matt. I mean, doing this year after year, it's a, it's a very useful resource. Thank you very much for this. Yeah, it's got to be a labor of love. Yeah, it must be a lot of work, actually. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, infographics. Infographics for the win. Yay. Over to you. Back to me. Now, since I was very mean to Cloudera in my previous article, I've got three more Cloudera articles. (laughs) And they're all three. I'm not going to mention, I'm going to go into detail on all three of them, but they're all about the uh, new I'm not sure if it's called a product or service uh, thing called Cloudera Data Science Workbench. Mm-hmm. Now, we've been talking about this earlier in an earlier episode. We've had an article about that already where we kind of concluded we weren't exactly clear on what the Data Science Workbench was supposed to be, basically. 
And with these three uh, blog posts, uh, first one's called Use Your Favorite Python Library on PySpark Clusters with Cloudera Data Science Workbench. The second one is, I have to scroll up a bit, Deep, Le- Deep Learning Frameworks on CDH and Cloudera Sa- Data Science Workbench. God, that's a difficult word to say. And the third one is Big DL on CDH on the Data Science Workbench. So these three articles all were uh, released in, I think, 26th of April, 28th of April, and the 20th of April. So mm-hmm. one after the other. And they do give a, a much clearer view, a practical view on how you can use a workbench and what the idea behind it is. And I haven't gone through all three of them in detail because the most recent one is, uh, yeah, was too recent to have to, to look at. But it gives you a much better uh, idea there. So when we said last time we didn't really understand how it worked, if you go through these three uh, blog posts, you should get a much clearer picture. And all I can say as a grouping is it does look interesting, actually. It does seem to be something that's primarily oriented towards the exploratory moments when you're still playing with your data and looking where the value might be. It can actually be, it could actually be a good tool. And uh, the ideal thing would, of course, be for to have somebody from Cloudera on the podcast to just talk to us about this. And it's something that I'm trying to get arranged. So, uh, if you haven't heard about the data science workbench yet, the links will be in the show notes. Have a read and it gives you a good idea of what you can do. And maybe in the future we'll have some uh, more information on the podcast itself. Indeed. So, from data science workbenches to um, accusations uh, that you're doing Hadoop and Spark wrong and you're probably going to fail. Um, <laughs> So, again, this is another one. Slow, slow news fortnight is all I yeah. can say. I, this if, is, you, if you take articles from the register, it must be a small news night. Well, I mean, and this is back from uh, 21st of February, so it's, it's a little oh. bit, uh, it's, it's not exactly current. But it's one I've been saving to talk about when, um, when I felt a bit ranty. And, um, you know, you've already started the rant train, so I'm just going <laughs> to board it. made up for it. <laughs> I'm just going to board it at one of the stations. So there's a, it's, it's about a talk uh, delivered by Gartner Research Director uh, Nick Hudecker at the firm's Sydney Data and Analytics Summit 2017. And um, his, he opens up with a grim prediction that 70% of Hadoop deployments made this year will either fail to deliver either the expected cost savings or the hoped-for new revenue. Um, He then talks about uh, a client talks to him every seven months and says they're ready to replace their data warehouse with Hadoop. And uh, he responds with, I hope they have their CV ready. (laughs) Um, And and it it just carries on along this sort of very sort of, I mean, I... And I don't know. I'd go quite as far to say bitter, but you know, very antagonistic. Oh, you know, this cannot possibly work. Everybody's doing it wrong. Everybody's failed. You're all doomed. Which is just, um, it's just garbage. Um, so <laughs> the the thing that I would say is at the very end of it. it he mentions uh, sort of if you train your own people, find a worthy project. Get on top of cloud versus on-prem costs, master security, get data quality, get developers being sensible, work out a relationship with a stable vendor, you have a decent chance of succeeding. Now, that is said in a 
I believe, a kind of tongue-in-cheek sort of, oh, you can't possibly do all of this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, I would argue, why on earth can't you do all that? That's all, uh, Those are the steps that we talk about yeah. every single time. Why would you not time. do it like this? Exactly. I mean, I mean, and if you're going to try and skip any of those, then sure, go and give up you because yeah. you're doing it wrong. But, but this is not specific for Hadoop. This I mean any kind of big yeah. project you're going to run, you're going to have to do some homework. There's no magic button. No, 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 certainly not. I mean, surely surely you're going to say that HD Insight comes close to being the magic button, aren't you? Uh, it's coming closer, <laughs> but it'll, it'll never be there. I mean, definitely not for a Hadoop solution, which is a toolkit of, solu of, yeah. of, tool of tools, which yeah. you can use to build something. And if you don't learn how to use the tools, what the good and bad parts of the tools are, and the platform you're running it on, yeah, you will indeed have a good chance of failing. Yeah. I mean, if you go, if you start driving a car without taking any lessons, there's a good chance you're going to crash. Indeed. Who to thank? So, yeah, who to thank it? <laughs> so, from, from the school of the obvious, um, yeah. What can I say? I, I just, yeah, well, disappointing article. Yeah, and, and with this, I mean, you've doomed the news, uh, the news section. I, I'm, I'm, I'm quitting. I'm, I'm stopping. <laughs> the news. This, this is enough. This is, this is too much. <laughs> so, so next, next time we do news, we'll, we'll pick um, shiny rainbows and unicorn stories. We promise. <laughs> yeah, but enough news for this week. Indeed, it's enough. It's done. It's over. Because after the music, we have a real treat for you. Because we have, of course, been to the Hadoop Summit, and I got talking to Mr. Alan Gates, uh, co-founder of Hortonworks, uh, member of ODPI, uh, PMC member to various uh, Apache projects, and the list goes on and on. So we had a very lengthy interview with Alan uh, about what he did with uh, Hadoop and Hive and Pig and a lot of other subjects. And after the news, after the news section, so after the music, you will actually get to hear the first part on Alan Gates Talks Hive, where we asked him a bunch of questions and he was uh, nice enough to answer them. Let's do it. I'd like to welcome Alan Gates to the Roaring Elephant Podcast. Welcome. Thank you. So thanks for thanks for finding the time to to be here. Um, Alan is obviously uh, famed for uh, co-founding Hortonworks and uh, back in 2011, and being one of the sort of uh, one of the main people behind um, a variety of different technologies from from Pig. Um, designing H catalog uh, and you know being pretty heavily involved, I think it's fair to say around uh, Hive. Um, but maybe Alan, do you want to say a few words about uh, about yourself uh, for those who maybe haven't come across you so far? Sure. So I I actually started working with Hadoop in uh, in Yahoo back uh, in the very early days when it was about Yahoo had just joined the project about a year before that. And my mm -hmm. first task was to help take Pig from a research project um, to make it open source in Apache and uh, then help start growing that community. And that was actually my first experience with an Apache project and in the Hadoop world. I worked on Pig for a number of years. I then, as you mentioned, I helped build HCatalog, which was kind of a bridge between Pig and MapReduce and Hive's metadata. and then. Lately, I've done a lot more work on Hive, 
did some things like helped add acid transactions to Hive. I uh, work a lot in the Hive Metastore now. I also uh, did help get Hortonworks started, and I still am in the engineering team there at Hortonworks, where I oversee a lot of the architecture work that you know as we design new features and products. So, I mean, how how much of your day is is still spent still spent sort of uh, bent over a keyboard? furiously coding and how much of it is spent you know blue sky thinking architecture reviewing meetings um well i try to make sure that the actual coding is about two days a week i don't not every week man do i manage that but that's yeah, yeah. kind of what i shoot for um maybe you know one of those days or is one of the days in the week is, as you say, blue sky, blue sky dreaming architecture, yeah. big plans for the future kind of stuff. And the rest is, you know, a lot of meetings and details and stuff. Because I also, I help organize the DataWorks Summit. I um, help with our ODPI effort. I'm involved in a lot of other things we do. So that obviously takes up a few days a week, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you mentioned that you know, a couple of different Apache project names. I mean, you're you're sort of member committer and and PMC for for quite a few different Apache projects, aren't you? I am, and most of those I haven't contributed to technically. I I end up getting involved because I mentor a lot of projects in the incubator. So as new oh, projects okay. join Apache, um, they do through do so through the incubator, whether they're brand new projects or whether they're, you know, already established software, but they're coming into Apache and learning the Apache way. And so I help, um, mentor a lot of those projects in how Apache works. So projects like Flink, um, mm -hmm. and Apex and Ranger, I've helped mentor all those, but I, you know, I, as far as I can recall, haven't written a line of code for any of them. Um, <laughs> I just, have helped them get to know Apache and uh, get their start there. Cool. What what actually, you know, with that sort of mentorship, what are the, some of the things that, um, you know, make that process smoother and easier? Uh, and, you know, what are some of the sort of common challenges for, for new Apache projects that you often see come up? Well, the big challenge I see is, I, I see a couple things. Sometimes projects, you know, they're not used to working completely in the open. They're used to collaborating mm -hmm. with people they already know. Um, maybe they're co-located, maybe they're not, but they're used to exchanging emails um, with each other and stuff. And Apache really focuses on, I mean, one of the things we say at Apache is we don't build great projects. We build communities that build great projects. Mm -hmm. And so it's really focused on that collaboration in the community. And that means you have to do everything on open uh, in the open on the mailing list where everybody can see it. And yeah. so it's that learning to, to embrace that open process. And some projects learn that very quickly and some, it takes a few more times around uh, before they really get that kind of down and, and set. Um, and so there's a lot of mentoring there. And then there's just the details of, you know, there's legal details of doing a release and how do you vote? for new committers. And, you know, most of that people pick up pretty quickly. It's just the grunt work of kind of showing them, Hey, you know, you got to do these five steps before you can do your release and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the, the two elements that I always think of with Apache are community that you've just been talking about, but also that, 
that level level of rigor around you know the the way projects are governed that you know in my view is one of the things that really differentiates an apache project an apache governed project from you know any other sort of open source um community project the 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 rules and regulations and, and governance that go around that seem to make quite a bit of a difference and i guess that that must be another element that maybe people that are Maybe you you see open source projects that are more fast and loose that, that suddenly have to think about well I've got to pass all these gateways before I can just before I can create a release what's that craziness Yeah, it, you're right. It is. There's a little bit of sometimes people don't understand what the rules are for, and Apache really is pretty laissez faire. And as much as possible, they allow communities to build their own rules and culture. But there are, like you mm-hmm. said, you know we we want to maintain that public image of our software is safe you you know if we release something you know you're not getting something with a bad license um you you know that we didn't steal it from somebody and give it to you and that takes a little bit of work (laughs) and effort and a little bit of documentation of you know here's all the code i have and here's all the places i got it and yes i have the rights to it and yes the licenses are compatible and and all that so it yeah and people do get a little tired of that sometimes when especially when they're first getting started even people have been doing it a long time i recently went through and did all that for hive just to make sure we still had everything right and um you know it's not the most fun project i did in the last year but it was pretty necessary (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 so i mean you've been you've been engaged and involved in in hadoop for you know it's fair to say quite quite a while now um you know what? What's the attraction for you in in this this sort of thriving ecosystem? Why why go into Hadoop and and stay there? So my background before Hadoop was database internals. Uh, way back in the nineties, I worked mm-hmm. for Informix, and um, yep. you know, I kind of a lot of the exciting relational database work was done in the seventies and eighties, and you know, I'm not quite old enough to have been coding for money back then. And so in the 90s, <laughs> when I was working in Formix, I remember kind of having this feeling like I missed it. Like I, I came to this business 10 years too late and I really liked databases and that, and the work I was doing, but I felt like a lot of the, the kind of cool, exciting new work had already been done. Yeah, the kind of groundbreaking yeah. space. And then Hadoop came along and it was it has been an amazing chance to ride the next wave in how data is uh, stored and processed. I mean, I just feel blessed to have been part of this next revolution in how all these things are done. So yeah, it's been a a great fit for me as far as being a part of that. Nice. Nice. Um, So one of the questions that we, we fairly regularly ask, uh, ask guests is, how do you describe Hadoop to someone that's never heard of it before? <laughs> it's actually hard. And it's funny. I've learned <laughs> even amongst software engineers, if they're not hardcore data people, I found I only have about 15 seconds before their eyes start to roll. <laughs> um, so it is actually challenging. You know, I start by just saying we take a whole lot of computers, you know, hundreds, even thousands of computers, and we teach them how to work together to store data and process, you know, run your processes on that all at once. Now, that's kind of the, you know, the the 10-second elevator pitch 
for people yep. who totally don't know. The next step, you know, once people have a little bit of grounding in what it is, I describe it really as a data operating system because it has storage, it has um, different execution engines available like MapReduce, like Spark, um, mm -hmm. you know, languages like Hive, Pig. Um, plus, obviously, you can bring Java Scala through Spark and other technologies. It has a scheduling system. It has an, several different security systems available. It, it really is kind of a primitive operating system, I think. Yep. Yeah. So um, uh, an extension of that really is, is how do you describe Hive to someone that's not heard of it before? I mean, the easiest inroad to Hive, of course, is just say it's SQL for Hadoop. Now, yep. that's both more and less than it is, right? It's, <laughs> Hive is more than that because it, that just kind of makes you think, oh, I can, you know, I can do MySQL or Postgres or whatever on Hadoop, which isn't, you know, Hive doesn't do all of the things you could do there. You couldn't do an OLTP thing on top of Hive. At the same time, it's, uh, you know, Hive has a lot of power that a more traditional database doesn't have because of the, um, what do you want to, because of the size, because of the sorts of operations it can do. I mean, you, you can, you can even break out of Hive and very easily do user defined functions much more so than in many other, uh, databases. And also, you know, when you think about it as a database on Hadoop, it's really just the SQL engine. There's a lot of other pieces to a database, the security, the governance, all those things that you, you can do on Hadoop, but you have to bring in yet more projects. Hive alone isn't going to give yep. you all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. Okay, so, I mean, Hive has Hive's come a long way um, in, uh, you know, in this time. I mean, Hive's evolved a heck of a lot in the, the sort of the three years that I've been really actively tracking it. What would, what would you describe the sort of current state um, of Hive and, you know, what works well at the moment? You know, what, what do you think um, could be better? Um, so Hive's on, I mean, it's in the middle of an evolution from, it really started as it was a SQL, a translator from SQL to MapReduce, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was good at the jobs MapReduce were at. Um, four or five years ago, when the whole move to let's actually do reporting, BI, all that kind of stuff on top of Hadoop, Hive started to evolve in that direction. So it's, I'd say it's partway through that is where it's at. And now with LLAP and, and those technologies, it can do ad hoc queries, it can do BI, it can do reporting. Um, we've got the beginnings of the transactional system in there, so you can start to do not OLTP-type workloads, but you can you know, OLAP workloads need transactions too for slowly changing dimensions and merging in new data. And it can do that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. I feel like there's, you know, there's still so many areas that it can grow into. Like um, there's work going on right now to integrate Hive with a technology called Druid, which is a separate project that it yeah. can use for OLAP indexes so that it can do cubing type queries, slice and dice stuff well. Because right now Hive still... I mean, it could do that okay, but it's probably not going to do it at a performance that's going to be interactive yet. So we're adding things um, like that. There's always more SQL features to add, of course, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the current state, I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is we're kind of targeting um, 
SQL, you know, twenty eleven analytics compliance. That's the sort of the the medium term goal, right, or short term goal? Yeah, it is. And we're, I mean, I don't have a percentage estimate. We've come a long ways from when I started on it five years ago, but um, it's you know we're not all the way there yet. There are still pieces that we're adding that we'd like to get in there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what, what do you see as some being some of the, the pitfalls that people walk headfirst into, um, when they're sort of deploying or architecting their first sort of hive based solution? What, what are the sort of things that people regularly get themselves twisted up with? Um, I would say probably the, the first mistake people tend to make is they do think of it too much as like a a regular data warehouse. They think of it as, oh, this, you know, it looks like Teradata, smells like Teradata, must be Teradata. <laughs> and it's not. It is a different thing. And so you have to try out your workloads on it, see what works well, what do you need to adjust, what makes sense in the system, what makes sense to do somewhere else, right? So you have to not just assume that it's the same as a standard database system. I, I think that's kind of one of the first pitfalls. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would say the other is just to realize this is still a young technology and it's going to take, there is some training for your team. There's training for how to use the tools around it and stuff. It takes still a little bit of time for people to get on it and get going. It's, it's not quite just sit down and go yet. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you mentioned earlier that, that uh, Hive is in the middle of an evolution. I mean, it, it feels like, just like many of the technologies in this space, they're in a, a continual state of evolution, a continual state of, of flux. And I mean that in a in a good way. They're continually evolving, developing. Uh, we're seeing, you know, fantastic new functionality emerging all the time. But that also <laughs> means it it can be fairly bewildering for 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 someone that's that's just getting into this that's maybe used to the let's face it you know slower moving more established relational database space that hasn't really changed a great deal in a, you know quite a long time yeah i think that's very true and i think it it comes in several ways right one it can lead to a a feeling of oh i'm always behind the curve it can lead to um kind of an analysis paralysis, like, well, I'll just wait because in six months there'll be something even cooler. And it can, it can also lead to just some like upgrade fatigue, I guess, if you will, where you're feeling like, Oh, I have to upgrade again. And the last upgrade was so painful because upgrades tend to be painful and uh, all that. And I think the thing there is people need to think about what do they really need? If they need the new features, if they really need it to be, you know, five seconds faster than it was before, then it's worth maybe waiting for that feature or upgrading to get that feature or whatever. But if it does what you need, just be happy with it. I mean, you know, my car doesn't go 120 miles an hour, but they don't let me drive that fast on the freeway here anyway. So I'm okay (laughs) with it, right? I'm not out trying to buy a car that'll go that fast. Um, You need to ask, does this system do what I want or, um, or not, rather than do I have the latest, coolest possible thing, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're not involved in the stoplight to stoplight kind of drag races, then? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, 
Oh, in my car? Yeah, definitely not. I have a I don't, I don't do a lot of drag street racing. Uh, Alan, right. would you say that for people that are trying out Hive as their first, uh, let's say, open source Apache project, that they're not used to the way it's being developed? Because if you have a traditional uh, database vendor, you get set releases at a certain point in time, once a year or something, and that's a finished product, the end. While an Apache project is much more live, of course, much more in movement all the time. So as a customer, as a user that's not used to open source, I see something new, so I assume it's... Okay. Do you think that that's uh, an issue? Yeah. It, I think it depends on where they get it from. So some people get um, their Apache projects from a distribution like Hortonworks or Cloudera mm -hmm. or whatever, and then it's going to be closer to what you're referring to, where you know you get it as a finished product from uh, a vendor, and you can expect a certain level of quality and stability. But you're right. If you're living right off the Apache project, especially, I mean, Apache itself, of course, makes releases, though mm -hmm. it's at least most of the projects don't necessarily have a strong release cycle of every six months or, you know, a regular cadence. Many of them kind of release whenever they want to release. Um, then you are going to spend a little more time, yeah, making sure it works in your environment, doing your own QE on it, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but that's an investment that the user needs to do. And, and typical users that come from a traditional environment, they're not used to have to do that. That's correct. It is. If I mean, the reality is, if you want to live straight off the Apache projects, you're generally um, committing to have a significant engineering investment to do the the QA, the integration testing, and make sure that it's working in your environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it makes sense. Um. So you mentioned, um, you know, that under some of the pitfalls that people make is, is you know, they just think of it as a, as a normal database. So let's assume that this is the first episode of the Roaring Elephant podcast that anyone has ever listened to. What are some of the primary differences between, you know, Hive and a traditional uh, relational database, traditional OLTP environment? Um, so I would, well, between this and OLTP, there's a lot of differences. Hive is definitely built to be more of a data warehouse, right? So mm -hmm. it's built on the assumption that whenever you run a query, you're going to scan a significant amount of data, gigabytes to you know, on up, right? So it's it's definitely not if if what you're trying to do is look up a single record or a few records, like find here's this guy's name, find his telephone number, or um, here's uh, you know, find me everybody that's name starts with A and their telephone numbers. That's not, Hive's not going to be good at those kind of queries. What it's going to be good at is find me everybody in my database and tell me the, the average sales to that customer over the last year. Um, that kind of thing where it's scanning a lot of data is what it's going to be good at. The other, you know, big difference is given enough uh, compute power, Hadoop scales super well. So the things about traditional databases, you tended to spend a lot of time trying to figure out what data should I keep? You know, what's the most, what's the prime data that I should be keeping? Because I can only afford so much database and I, I don't want to waste it on stuff I don't care about. Hadoop kind of turns those economics around. Storage is a lot cheaper. And by not throwing away the the data that you think you don't care about, you don't screw up and throw away data that maybe you would have cared about if you knew to ask a different question, right? By throwing 
data away early or by forcing data into a certain model, you're basically mm -hmm. pre-deciding the questions you can ask. Mm -hmm. Hadoop allows you to keep all the data and eventually ask bigger or different questions. I, I think the other thing is, you know, in the traditional database world, as I kind of referenced, you do, um, you build a data model and then you wedge the data into that model. Um, in the Hadoop world, you more land the data where it is. Then, I mean, of course, you're going to do some cleaning and some, some arranging so that queries can work well. But you really want to focus on letting the, the workload drive your queries rather than letting the model drive your queries in the Hadoop world, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, it's it's definitely the the, the kind of things that uh, that people seem to, I guess, gloss over. They they as you said initially, they they see SQL and they just think, great, I I have the answer to all my problems, yeah. and it's 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 never quite that easy. Yeah, I mean, every as with every system, you. You know, they try to. We try to present abstractions to make things easy for people, which is, the, of course, the right thing for us to do. But, but it's always better to understand the pieces underneath the abstraction at least enough to understand what's going to work well and not. Just like myself as a C plus plus programmer back in the day. Now I do mostly Java, but um, you know, I never. I never understood all the intricacies of an Intel chip, but I had to know enough about registers and those pieces to not do stupid things. Um, and it's the same thing here. You have to know enough about the system underneath to, um, to use it in a way that's going to work well with the system. Yeah. 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 That makes, makes perfect sense. When you talked about the way you use hive as more of a flexible engine, not as a scheme driven one, uh, in my uh, experience, you can use Hive in two ways. You can use the serialization, deserialization to just get data from your raw data on the fly, or you can use uh -huh. it as a real database. You create a table with ORC file or whatever you want below there as a real database format. Which of the two would you say is the primal, the primary way of interacting with Hive? Both. I, I don't think there's really one over the other. What mm -hmm. we tell people to do is bring the data in, however it, whatever format it's in, text, JSON. Avro, whatever, land it there. Then you can use um, Hive or Spark or whatever you like to do the transforms into ORC or Parquet or something like that, which is going to help you do much more optimized queries. So we really see people doing both, and I think both makes a lot of sense because when you do that cleaning and optimizing, like I said, you are pre-deciding the queries you're going to ask, and then later if you realize you know, you some say some data scientist is doing something and he realizes, oh, we're asking completely the wrong question. You can go back to the old data, build a new set of tables off of it that's optimized for a set of queries and then run those queries. Uh, does that mean that you're suggesting you would use the serialization, initialization as a first step when you're building your pipeline and once you know what you're doing, you don't do it anymore, you just do the org tables? Or do you yeah. would you say that in a normal uh, pipeline, you will always have a bit of one and a bit of the other running all the time? I, I think you'll have some of of both in the. I mean, I think early on you will be bringing in the data and landing it um, in the raw format. So you'll always have some of both. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, from from what we tend to see, some of the the kind of bit that people get a little bit bent out of shape with is the obviously there's a big 
you know, people think of Hadoop and you start looking at Hadoop and you, you, you hear all this. It's all about schema on read and people think, oh, thank God for that. I no longer need to think about schemas anymore. And, and then we, you know, you get partway down that sort of journey and then you find out, yeah, it is schema on read. But if, you know, once you really know the questions you want to ask, you probably want to apply, you know, at least a light amount of schema around it. As Jan said, you know, putting things into ORC files so you can just get, you know, significant boosts in, in performance for those kind of queries. So it's, it's kind of, you've got a bit of both. The idea is that you, you still have that historical data in, you know, maybe an archive zone somewhere. So if you do need to create some fresh, uh, fresh ORC file, um, tables, you know, backing hive tables, then, then that's great. But, uh, there's, there's always going to be that element of, you know, if you're looking for some, some real performance boosts, you know, putting some light elements of schema with, you know, something like ORC file or Parquet or, you know, whatever you want to do is, is going to be one of the things that people go to pretty early on, isn't it? Oh yeah. You, you have to, I mean, you just can't get the performance on text data that you can on, you know, columnar data in something like ORC. I mean, these formats were designed and with ORC and Parquet both, these aren't, it's not like these are brand new technologies. These are things that have been around. Um, ORC is based on uh, Microsoft's uh, SQL Server PDW format. And Mm -hmm. these are technologies that were developed years ago by other groups to do this. And they did it because it, it made their databases much faster and that's the same as happening yep. here. And it's not just in the storage, it's in the execution uh, algorithms you can apply when you know things like, um, Oh, I know that there's a foreign key primary key relationship between these two tables that enables you to do certain optimizations in a join process that you couldn't do otherwise that there's just no way you're ever going to get that on, you know, here's some raw data and I'll, I'll only tell you the schema once you read it. Or, or, you know, as I read it. So yeah. while there's certainly value in complete schema and read, you're right. The more you can tell us beforehand, the more we can do beforehand to to avoid needing to do it at runtime. And then, of course, speed isn't always the important thing. If you're in the exploration phase, then you want the flexibility more than the speed. Once you of have course. your thing running, then speed becomes more and more important. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it, actually. Thank you. you to alan gates that was part one of alan gates talks hive um, we do indeed have a, a a number of treats in store as uh, we've split this into a number of different sections as we wander through the the mind of alan gates um, so thank you to alan for for everything that you've heard so far and uh, look forward to more alan gates coming up in future episodes yeah great thanks to alan it was great having you on the podcast indeed indeed But with that, that's about all the time we have today. We hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. We'll be back in two weeks' time with a brand new episode. But until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find out more information, uh, including a feedback form and the raffle rules. You know, enter to win that shiny, shiny 
subscription to uh, some O'Reilly online books. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter using the uh, Hadoopcast tag and contact us by email at podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thoughts, comments, criticisms and other feedback. Um, congratulations again to uh, Mohammed Ansari for winning um, the uh, ticket sponsored by Hortonworks uh, for the DataWorks Summit in San Jose. And uh, thanks again to Pit Fagan as runner-up. If Mohammed can't take it, the ticket is all yours. Uh, until then, my name is Dave. And my name is John. And we look forward to talking to you in two weeks' time. Bye. Have a good one.